Hey and welcome back to Mindblown. Today we'll be talking about UDGs, also known as Ultra Diffuse Galaxies, Music Bending, Concrete on Mars, Gravitational Wave Interferometers, Wildfires, ISOs, and why we think Mars is quite inhospitable. Then I'll pass the floor over to Nathan. So let's dive right in. UDGs, or Ultra Diffuse Galaxies, are still quite a mystery for astronomers. They have a lot fewer stars, but they're still spread out over large distances, making them really hard to spot. We don't really know how they were formed or if there's something special about the dark matter halos that help them form. Recently, scientists have been able to answer these questions about UDGs, specifically quenched UDGs or ones that aren't producing any new stars. Through simulations and testing, astronauts have been able to spot and analyze some new galaxies that match this description. They say quenched UDGs were made in what's known as backsplash orbit, really far from the host galaxy but still loosely connected. Basically, they were part of another system before becoming isolated, and they share some characteristics with the original system. UDGs are in fact an exception of our theories of galaxy formations, since we think they should be in clusters or group environments in order in order to get their gas removed and stop forming stars. But no! The quenched UDGs that were detected are isolated. Their origin is in backsplash orbits. The simulation used was called TNG-50. It was able to predict UDG systems similar to those that have been seen in the real world, and it could also act as a time machine, rolling back these galaxies to see where they came from and how. The simulation suggested that the percentage of UDGs in an ultra-diffuse population of galaxies could be almost as much as 25% or higher, which is incredible compared to a field of observations. It might also mean that our telescopes can't detect a lot of these galaxies very well. I mean, so far, we don't have a one-size-fits-all explanation for all these galaxies. UDGs are like dwarf galaxies in terms of star count. A lot of researchers think that dark matter in UDGs are confusing, but the researchers will next visit the Keck telescope in Hawaii to find better and more accurate dark matter characteristics that can explain the spreading of the stars. Our next topic is music bending. Remember last week we talked about moths making decoys to scare off bats? Well, we'll be talking about the characteristics today. Sometimes when we listen to music, we don't just hear the notes of the music, but we also hear the echoes. This is why music can sound almost completely distorted in a church or a long hall. In fact, architects have been really focusing on this fact when building things, for example, concert halls. Some scientists even want to try and manipulate this acoustic echo that would distort the music to sound completely different. Also, some objects that can manipulate the acoustic feel so that the listener no longer hears it. One example is the quietest room in the world at Microsoft, also known as an anechoic chamber. Another way to achieve this effect would be artificial noise cancelling. The background room in the noise is so low, it just reaches the lowest level theorized by mathematicians and musicians, basically the absolute zero of sound. So the next step would be a vacuum, but it wouldn't have particles for sound in the first place. Now this sounds like an extremely catchy title, but concrete on Mars, made out of astronaut blood, sweat, and tears. Quite literally, concrete in other world planets would hopefully be made out of simulated regolith, also known as otherworldly rock material from Mars or the moon. A recent mixture of it uses a protein found in human blood, sweat, tears, and even urine. This mixture is even stronger than concrete today, and would be really, really good for extraterrestrial buildings. So great, right? Wrong. 
uh let's just say you need way too much blood uh but it's pretty similar to what we used in the middle ages also known as animal blood which was used to bind mortar but probably not as environmentally friendly the answer for extraterrestrial buildings is quite literally inside of us another problem for not going to mars and building there would be rockets on the latest data 1,500 US dollars you need to pay for each kilogram included in a rocket launch. Wait a sec, it would cost 2 million to ship a brick to Mars? Maybe we should look at materials that are already on Mars. The regolith is good, but you might need a compound to put it together. Wait, we did talk about urine, right? A compound in human urine helps plasticize concrete so it's much more flexible and much harder. That can withstand quite a lot of building. In fact, there's a company called Astrocrete that uses a protein called albumin found in plasma inside human blood to bind concrete. They put this together to create extraterrestrial regolith biocomposites, also known as just strong material that can be used well in buildings. Astrocrete currently has a strength of 39.7 megapascals, which is actually much stronger than concrete today. Synthetic spider silk and bovine serum albumin could also work at some point and were tested to work, but the initial supply of blood protein would be harvested from astronauts or humans, according to the company's paper. In a year, six astronauts could provide enough albumin to build 250 kilograms of astrocrete, but further research is definitely needed. This is only short term, so we won't need to harvest blood on every human being. Our next topic is gravitational wave interferometers. Gravitational wave interferometers such as LIGO are made to measure the small ripples in all of spacetime, generated by lots of cosmic objects bending it on a large scale, such as black holes. But we might have another tool which will help us detect these signals. There are dead stars scattered around the cosmos called pulsars, and their delays in their timed flashes we can detect, and they tell us quite a lot of things happening in spacetime. Earlier this year, the Nanograv team announced that they might have been able to uh, detect these pulsars. They have been backed by a second group of astrophysicists from Osgrave in Australia, and they are on the right track. It matches the gravitational background noise, and it's extremely consistent, but there's lots of evidence needed before a conclusive claim can be made. Our next topic today is about wildfires. Remember the Australian fires from around 2019 to 2020? Well, it packed quite a powerful punch of carbon dioxide almost around the whole Earth. In fact, recent studies show almost twice as much as previously thought, detected with satellites. The fires also sent up huge clouds of smoke and ash that went far over the southern ocean, and in fact fertilized the water and sent up huge waves of microscopic algae named phytoplankton, another team found. Both were published just yesterday. Well, from the time I'm recording this is the 16th, but at least we've started life elsewhere. But anyway, these findings are, well, worrying in a lot of ways, actually. In fact, the fires have almost devastated the eucalyptus forests where a lot of animals called home. Lots of sad things about animals today. Our next topic is about ISOs. No, not the bootable ISOs, the ones that you use to have a DVD drive for. The interstellar objects that frequently visit our solar system. So far, we've only seen two of them. They are Oumuamua and the two I Borisov. There's a third possible ISO, but research and the universe says there should be many more. But research also shows cosmic ray erosion limits the lifespan of icy ISOs. There could be lots of them, but their lifespan has been shortened. If this is true, then Oumuamua was probably twice its size than it was originally when it passed our solar system. The researchers looked at four different types of ISOs, nitrogen, N2, 
carbon monoxide, CO, carbon dioxide, CO2, and methane, CH4. They also considered cosmic rays in the interstellar medium and the erosion, uh, that is, erosion between collisions of ISOs and gases in the interstellar medium, and what effect it would have on the ISOs. The research takes many, many variables into account. At the end of the experiment, the different types of ices erode differently at different rates. This experiment also suggests Oumuamua was actually just an ice fragment from Pluto-like body from some other solar system. My last topic before I give the floor over to Nathan is why Mars is quite inhospitable. If you think it would be pretty hard to get to Mars, you wouldn't be wrong. Wait, didn't we talk about this last episode? Oh yeah, uh, well, it's still pretty inhospitable if you think about it, especially with the harmful atmosphere. But also something else happened recently. An area on Mars called the Arabia Terra had a ton of supervolcano eruptions that fills the whole atmosphere with dust and toxic gases, and each one changed the Martian climate almost decades at a time. These eruptions took span over 500 million years, and it was once a different place from what it looks like to this day. These had a large impact on the climate. One could block out the sun to make the atmosphere colder, or make the atmosphere thicker with even more toxic gases. We would need a lot of time changing the Martian climate, with volcanoes in mind. On Mars, there are super eruptions on the highest scale of all known volcano eruptions with a magnitude of 8, the highest scale on the index. Although it was a long time ago, we were still able to recover data of the eruption with the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter Compact Reconnaissance Imaging Spectrometer from Mars. You can also just call it CRISM. The terrain also has lots of depressions that have been thought of originally as craters from other objects, which would make sense, but a 2013 paper suggested something completely different. Not impact craters, but calderas. The depressions are left behind from super volcanic eruptions. They decided to look through the region and found instead large layers of rock, and they found volcano ash. The researcher team did the calculations, and we found almost 1,000 to 2,000 eruptions over the last half a billion years. That is absolutely mind-blowing. Sorry, I had to. Take it away, Nate. Hey everyone, it's Nathan. Today I'm going to talk about a few normal things with a small twist to them. That's my topic for today, so let's just get on with it, shall we? A famous place to see when you go to Australia is Lake Hillier, known for its pink color akin to the color of pink lemonade or strawberry milkshake. It's pretty evident that it's a pretty popular place to see, so let's dive into this phenomenon. Ha <laughs> that's a swimming joke. So why is Lake Hillier pink? While the exact cause of the lake's color is not known for sure, most scientists agree that it might have something to do with the microorganisms that call their lake their home. And by microorganism, I mean microalgae. This specific type of microalgae is called Dunaliella salina. I may have butchered that, uh, but that's a scientific name. These salt-loving microorganisms generate energy by using parts of the visible light spectrum aside from orange and red frequencies. It's also very tolerable towards high salt concentrations in the water, being able to tolerate salt concentrations from 0.2% to 35%. These microorganisms create carotenoid pigments and beta-carotene, which is found in carrots. And these two things are able to give the lake its pink color. But that's not all. There are also a large amount of halophilic bacteria, which is a fancy word for microorganisms that like saline water, and archaea, 
in the salt crusts of the lake that could also be contributing to this lake's color. These microorganisms also produce a similar pigment with their cell membranes. But with all of these microorganisms in the water, is it safe to swim in? Well, according to the official site of this lake, it's perfectly safe to swim in. Despite the color of the water, it won't damage your, si your skin. It doesn't have any fish in it because of its high salt concentration though, and while algae in the water is completely harmless, it's not a good idea to drink hypersaline water. Sadly, the lake is also very difficult to get to, so regular tourists may not be able to visit it. But the lake is best appreciated from the sky anyway, where you can see its pink pop out from the rest of the green land. Tornadoes. Columns of rushing air that brought Dorothy to the land of Oz. Yeah, they've gotten worse. My next phenomenon here is fire tornadoes. This is a pretty rare phenomenon in nature, but there's still plenty of many man-made fire tornado science projects out there. Unfortunately, this isn't one of those. In nature, fire tornadoes are like the 2020 of the natural disaster world. Dangerous, horrible to experience, and something you just don't want to happen again once you've experienced one. But before we get started on the fire part, let's brush up on how tornadoes form. Tornadoes form when warm, humid air collides with cold, dry air. The cold air is denser than the warm air, and it sinks. This usually causes a thunderstorm. And when the warm air rises up through the cold air, it causes an updraft. This updraft will begin to rotate, if wind speeds or directions vary sharply. As the rotating updraft draws in more warm air from this moving thunderstorm, its rotational speed will increase. More cool air and a strong band of wind in the atmosphere will provide even more energy. Inside the tornado is a lot of moist air, and this moist air forms a funnel cloud. This funnel will grow and grow until it descends from the cloud, and when it touches the ground, it becomes a tornado. And now for the fire part. Take that whirling cloud of air and take a match to it. That's how easily this thing can get out of hand. These usually form in nature when a wildfire or even a house fire creates its own wind. This wind can create large vortexes of air, and these vortexes are on freaking fire! Essentially, when fire starts to create enough wind, it will eventually form tornadoes with its heat, and these tornadoes make contact with the fire. When this tornado makes contact with the fire, chaos ensues! These fire whirls, as they're also called, are so dangerous that they can uproot trees. It's a shame they're so dangerous, yet so beautiful. I'd say take a picture if you see one, but if you see a fire tornado nearby, a picture will be the least of your worries. Now, let's take a step back from the heat of a fire tornado and move on to my final topic, which are ice caves. Traditional ice caves in Iceland are best visited between November and March when the weather is cold enough for the ice caves to be stable enough to visit and explore properly. So how are these ice caves, or also known as glacier caves, formed? Ice caves form whenever water warm enough to melt the ice or melt water runs through or under a glacier, melting the ice and leaving behind a cavern and or passageways within the glacier. During the summer months, warmer temperatures and sunlight will melt the ice at the surface of the glacier, and that's how meltwater is created. The meltwater drains downwards through crevices in the ice or into sinkholes, which creates shafts. These shafts are almost always vertical which allows water to descend to the bottom of the glacier. These channels, or conduits, are much larger than most people would imagine, and they can be as wide as 10 meters and descend to the base of the glacier, helping it to move. That's a little short and sweet topic, and I believe that just about wraps it up for today. Thanks for tuning into Mind Blown, and we'll see you next week.